0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to talk about just the the, the greatness of of and being in the sukkah and everything like that. So, it's such an awesome holiday, and you know, on one level, I, I, all, all Torah is true all the time. So, so uh, even though this is about sukkah, it just it's this is for the entire year. So let me just just tell you why, and then we can go into sort of like the just the topic itself a little more deeply. Um, I once heard a beautiful idea. I I, I don't know who I'm afraid for, from who, but um, I really love it. it. It's it's the idea like this that that if a, a baby um, imagine a baby in its mother's arms and imagine the the mother is traveling all over the world from you know New York to China to Los Angeles and and always the baby is 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 cradled in its arms. So from the mother's point of view, it's traveling all over the world. But from the baby's point of view, it's been in the same place the entire time in its mother's arms, right? In its mother's embrace. And that's us and God. We're in God's embrace wherever we go, whatever we do. So that's the concept of the sukkah. So, so, so everybody knows that, I think by now, that the sukkah is a divine embrace. That's the whole idea that it surrounds you. It's like a big hug that you're getting. And, you know, I, I heard something so beautiful from Reb Shlomo, which is that um, if someone wants to know how much they were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the question is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? And, and I think, that, that's all he said, but I'm just going to try to explain it a little bit. The idea being that, um, you know, sometimes someone hugs you, and you just kind of want to get away as soon as you can. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like, it's uncomfortable, Right. Um, sometimes someone hugs you, and you're just you're just like you just give yourself over to that that level of embrace, right? And that's that's the idea of being in the sukkah in terms of the comfort factor. In terms of if you feel comfortable there, right? Then you you you, you that's that's the good type of hug, right? And so the idea of Yom Kippur is, as Rav Soloveitchik says, it's the restoration of relationship. In other words, you're sort of like Repairing a relationship, and when the relationship is repaired, then you feel good in the embrace. That's the idea of feeling comfortable in the sukkah. So again, if you want to know how good your Yom Kippur was, the question is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? So hopefully, the the, the logic is clear. If you if you've sort of like made the relationship right, then then you're loving the hug. that, that that's the idea. That's the idea. Okay, so. And we can't mention that without mentioning another sort of classic on the same top, topic, which is also from Reb Shlomo, which is that you know the letter Samach is a circle, and he says that when you hug someone, you're actually making the letter Samach around them, and it says in the in the Tehillim, in the Psalms of King David, by by the letter Samach, it says no Noflim, that God uplifts the fallen, and so that is sort of like the body language when you're hugging someone. You're basically telling them, I'm never going to let you fall. That's what's being communicated on a, on a soul level. Okay, so this is the idea that on some level, wherever we go throughout the entire year, whatever we're doing, we're always in God's sukkah. Okay? But now let's kind of get to the actual light of sukkahs. See, let, let, me, let me phrase it to you another way. Um, I'm sure you've all seen pictures of this, which is that you have a prism, like a crystal prism, right, which is kind of like a triangular shaped thing, and the light goes in on one side, and it comes out, and it's split into the colors of the rainbow, right, so it's like white light in, and then all the spectrum of colors on the other side, so that's a way to understand um, all of these concepts in in, in the calendar. All of these things that we teach all year long, all of the holidays are part of the white light. In other words, we're always leaving Egypt. It's always Pesach, we're always leaving Egypt. Every time we get saved from anything, that's an aspect of being saved from Egypt. you understand? So this is this is and, and we can go through all of the holidays. This is this is this is true for everything. So when all of these ideas are all together, that's like the white light. That's going on all of the time. However, these ideas get filtered through the calendar. These ideas get filtered through through time and space, and, and they get, like just like the white light goes in, and then it becomes red, yellow, orange, blue, violet, everything like that. It becomes very sort of focused and specific, and that becomes the holiday itself, the headquarters for that idea. In other words, the ideas going on all along, we're always in God's embrace, However, that idea gets filtered through time and space and finds a headquarter, headquarters on the calendar. And what is the headquarters of the calendar of that idea? Sukkos. Do, do you understand? So so on the one hand, it's always true. On the other hand, there's a capital of that idea in time and space on the calendar. And in this case, that's SUCUS. Okay. So... So... While we're talking about just the location of sukkahs on this on the calendar, let's 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 transition to this idea. It's a very famous question that's brought out by the Torah, one of the great uh, Torah commentators, and and he asks the following question. And if you if we all think about it, we would eventually ask this question ourselves, which is that if the sukkah is is the commemoration of what we lived in while we were trekking through the desert for 40 years, well, we leave Egypt, Pesach, the appropriate time for Sukkot, just chronologically then, would be right after Pesach. So he asks this very famous question, why aren't we celebrating Sukkot right after Pesach? And he gives a very interesting answer, which we won't go into so much, the answer is, is that because it's springtime then, if people just saw you sitting in huts, they'd assume that you're sort of, you've sort of modeled something in order to enjoy the, the weather. And they wouldn't understand that there's a religious significance to it. But by doing it later, by doing it you know, in the fall time, you, you, you understand that there must be some other idea behind this, right? So I just want to kind of build on this idea. I didn't see it inside, but just to build on it slightly. We have a concept called per- Persume Nisa, which is to publicize a miracle. Right? That's, for instance, why we light the um the, Chanukia, the, the, the menorah. Uh, either in Israel, you, you do it outside your home so that it's right in the street so everyone can see it, or, or we put it in the window so that people can see it, and that's to advertise this great miracle that took place. So I wonder if on some level, and I don't think he brings this, but if on some level, there's a presumably Nisa aspect to making the sukkah in the fall time. In other words, what, what is the miracle? The miracle is that we survived in the desert for 40 years without any really food or water. I mean, we had bread coming from heaven and we had this miraculous stream that was accompanying us, but it was all on the level of miracles. But the sukkah itself was another miracle, which was the Ananiya covet which were these clouds of glory that sort of like protected us from the hot sun and protected us from arrows flying and dry-cleaned our clothes, by the way, and just got rid of snakes that were sort of like around us. So there were, there were so, many, so many amazing um, blessings that came from the Anani HaKavid. And according to Rabbi Eliezer in the Talmud, as opposed to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva says that the, the, the sukkahs that we make today are because we lived in these sukkahs. Rabbi Eliezer says, no, 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 the sukkahs that we make today are because of these clouds of glory. That's the reason why we make them, which was a completely miraculous construct. And seemingly we go according to Rabbi Eliezer, interestingly. So if that's the case, all the more so should we have sukkahs at a time when it doesn't make sense to have outdoor huts, in order to advertise this miracle that we were protected by these amazing clouds of glory. Right? I don't think that's what the Torah says, but I'm just sort of like building on that idea. You know, that there's this publicizing of this great miracle that happened when we, when we build a sukkah. Okay. So, so... I heard in the name of the uh, Solomur Revi, the Sloner the Revi, the Nativa Shalom, who says something very interesting. Again, let's return back to this question. Why are we having Sukkos? Why aren't we having Sukkos after Pesach? Why aren't we having Sukkos after Pesach? So the, the, the Nativa Shalom says something very interesting. If you had Sukkos after Pesach, because we're always going to be going up in the holidays if you had, and by the way, don't say, you can't have sukkahs after Pesach, because you just had Pesach, you just had a big holiday you can't have another big holiday you can't say that, you know why? because we have sukkahs right after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur so sort of like, we've just had two big holidays and we've got another holiday so so that, that you can't say that, so but the Nativa Shalom says that if we had Pesach after Sukkot, we would only reach the level of Yom Kippur. And now can you imagine that we have Yom Kippur, that we reach the level of Yom Kippur, and we have yet another holiday. We go to yet another epiphany, which is this amazing thing, which means you're reaching brand new heights. Again, it's very, very important that we all have sort of like a a more sophisticated understanding of the progression of the holidays. That it's not sort of like, like we were saying before, it's sort of like, okay, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, it's heavy, it's heavy, it's heavy. So God throws in Sukkot, all right, you know, take a break. You know, let's have some fun. That's not it. I mean, I'm sure that's an aspect to it. But there's, there's this sense of flow that all of the holidays are telling one story. That one story is being told. Okay, so that being the case, what is the story that Sukkot is telling after Yom Kippur? What 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 is that story? What is that story? So, or what is that extra point? And by the way, just to, just to, uh, kind of like, amplify the, the the previous point. Not only do we have Sukkot after um, Yom Kippur, but we also have Hoshana Rabbah, and we also have. Shmini Yatzeris, and we also have Simcha's Torah. So in other words, the gates after Yom Kippur are so wide open, and then we have all these extra amazing opportunities to connect and to go beyond, 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 okay? So again, we can get into the specifics of those later, but let's just concentrate on Sukkot right now. So Sukkot, if you look at the verse in the Torah, it says... And the Chedusha Arim points this out, the first Rebbe points this out, which is that it says that, um, you know, we have this mitzvah to dwell in the sukkah, now listen carefully, so that you will know, that's the key word, but the, the verse continues, so that you will know that when you travel through the desert, you encamped in sukkas. Okay? But again, this key This key phrase, because, you know, the Torah is so infinite, the Torah is so deep, that when you're learning the Torah, if you're learning it L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven, and you're learning it, you know, with the the whole gestalt, if you will, of, of, of the approach of our holy sages from Mount Sinai to the present day, you can stop a verse at a key word, and you can dig out a whole new level of meaning. So this is not an invitation to take things out of context, God forbid, and misinterpret them. But if you're doing it in the proper spirit, you can stop at certain words and discover whole new worlds. And so this is an example of, of one of these instances. So the Chadusha says, well, the verse is saying so you that God is commanding us to sit in this sukkah so that we will know. Let's just stop right there. So in other words, knowing is, in, in Hebrew we use the word das, that you're going to be able to have das. In other words, one's das gets corrected after Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And now there are all sorts of levels of learning that you're able to access because you're like this clean, brand new entity after Yom Kippur. And you can have das again. You can have a new level of understanding again for new levels to come down. Okay, so he goes into, he explains it a little bit better. So let's just go a little bit further into, into detail. You see, we have a concept in Gomorrah which is that no one does anything wrong unless a spirit of insanity comes over them. In other words, In other words, if a person truly understood that wherever they go, whatever they do, like, even if they're in the darkest place, that they're standing before God. If a person truly understood that, they would never ever do anything wrong. It's only because the mind gets clouded over, because das becomes concealed, or becomes limited, that a person can ever do anything that's not appropriate, right? So, so what happens is, is that wrongdoing, over time, sort of like clouds one's das, And what happens on Yom Kippur is, you go to the holy dry cleaners, right? Hashem like just like cleanses you and wipes away all of that schmutz on your like this window, basically, and all of a sudden you can see clearly again. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I'm, I'm sure everyone's had it, where your window is like your 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 windshield is filthy, and then you just get some water on it, and you're like. Wow! Or on your glasses, <laughs> like on your glasses, you like you clean them off, and it's like wow. Okay, so this is that to the you know nth degree. This is that to the nth degree. So now now comes sukkos. Now comes this new opportunity to get das. So again, let's go back to what the Slonim Rebbe says. If we had sukkos after Purim, we would just reach the level of Yom Kippur, now can you imagine what it means to have Sukkot after Yom Kippur, after your mind is clear, after your Das has been restored, to have this opportunity of Sukkot and all the other holidays that are coming up still? It's an amazing, amazing thing. Okay, So, so once Das is restored, so now I wanna go deeper into this idea of the restoration of Das, okay? Because one of the things that I always struggled with is the idea that, according to the Talmud, one of the fruits, there are different um, different, uh, different opinions given as to what was the fruit from the tree of knowledge. The Eitz Hadass. Eitz Hadass, right? The tree of knowledge. We're still talking about Das now. We haven't changed the subject, okay? So, one opinion is that it was a... A grape, another opinion was that it was a a fig, Um, another opinion was that it was wheat, Um, and another opinion was that it was actually the esrig. And so this has been over time challenging to me because it seems like, you know, if you know about the arbamenum, the the four species that we take on succus, they each stand for something else, and the highest most exemplary personage that's, that's symbolized by the Arbaminim is the Esrig. The Esrig is the person who learns Torah and does mitzvahs. The Esrig is that idealized Torah personality. So, if that's the case, how could it be that the Esrig was, according to one opinion, the fruit from the tree of knowledge, which sort of like sent us to this place to begin with, right? Like, like how do you reconcile those two things? Like on the one hand it's so good, on the other hand it seems to have been sort of like this major stumbling block for us. Okay. So the answer that I'd like to suggest is 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 fairly straightforward. Which is which is the following. First everyone should know that we were destined to be able to eat from the eight Hadass. It was just at that moment we were not supposed to eat from the Eitz Adas. and I've heard a couple of opinions regarding this. One is that we could have eaten the Eitz Adas after the Eitz Chaim, after the Tree of Life. And by the way, Rabbi Freeman pointed out that this year, the last two numbers of this year were in fifty-seven, seventy-eight. Seventy-eight is Ayin Ches, and Ayin Ches stands for Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim this year. Okay, so that's a big blessing for this for this year coming. So. So according to this, according to this um, opinion, we could have eaten the Eitz Adas, but first we had to eat the Eitz Chaim. First we had to eat from the tree of life, then we could eat from the tree of knowledge. And I'll explain that in a moment. Another opinion that I've heard is that the Eitz Adas was for Shabbos. Like we could have eaten that, but it was it was it was really meant for for Shabbos. But either way, we could have eaten it, but we didn't eat it in the right time. So so. Here's the problem when you have too much knowledge without enough life experience. Right, so the example that I always like to give is like children. Children who try to give their parents advice, right? And this is true probably (laughs) till we get very old. Hopefully not, but this trait often doesn't go away. So here's an example of a child speaking to their parent. The child says, one candy bar is fantastic. Therefore, 30 candy bars must be 30 times fantastic. Right, dad? And then you say, no, that's gonna make you sick. And then the kid says, did I not communicate? Did I not do the math for you? Like, where did I lose you? One candy bar is delicious. Thirty candy bars must be thirty times delicious. And the father says, No, it's gonna make you sick. And it's like the kid legitimately doesn't understand. And yet the kid, from the kid's point of view, he could not be talking more clearly, more logically. Puts it in math. What could be what could be better than that? That the, the parent just is a fool. The parent just doesn't get it, right? Okay. So that's an example of Knowledge without life, knowledge without life experience. Okay? When when we get when we ate from the eights hadas, we got all these thoughts about how we ultimately were, were an ultimate <coughs> power like God, and that God didn't want us to eat it because then we would also be God. And God was trying to, like the snake made all sorts of interesting arguments. And we wondered, is there actually one power in the world? Which, of course, is the foundation of Judaism. Ain old Milvado, right? There's only one God, one power. Again, Judaism doesn't say, our God is stronger than your God. Judaism says, there is only one power. There's only one power, and it's Hashem. That's it, period, end. It just ends there, right? So, so, and anyone who thinks that the test that was given to Adam and Chava by the Tree of Knowledge was a small test has no appreciation of how giant this test was. It's an enormous test. I'll I'll tell you on another level. If, If God doesn't want us to eat it, Here's just getting into the psychology of it a little bit more, right? By the way, it's the Das Tavunas, the the Ramchal, who says that the test was whether we understood that there was only one power in the world. That's what the test was. You see, just just think of yourself for a moment. You see something that looks good. How many times, you know, and I'm talking to you with a, a belly right now, right? How many times have you looked at something and said, that's not good, and then you say, but if it's not good, why does it look so good? <laughs> <laughs> and then your brain short circuits, and so then you just eat it, right? The same thing happened—a version of that, for real, happened when 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 Chava looked at the Eitz Hadas, and it says it right in the the Chumash itself. It says it right in the Torah. She looked at the fruit, and it looked good, and she asked herself a very basic question: If If I'm not supposed to eat it, if it's forbidden, why does it look so good? It must be that God doesn't want me to have it. Because if I have it, then I'm gonna be like God. You see how there's an invitation to all sorts of theorizing, especially when you have the snake itself like speaking like in the most you know eloquent like you know, persuasive ways. But just so everybody knows for your own life, right, something can look extremely good and not be good for you. Something can look like, and there's no contradiction whatsoever. God made this world in such a way that certain things look absolutely fantastic and are nonetheless completely forbidden. Just right and yeah i'm not just talking about food believe me <laughs> 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 that's why i'm emphasizing the point <laughs> so 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 we have to we have we have to understand that because then we can be a step ahead and our brains won't just short circuit on the sort of like entry level you know dissonance okay but again let's get back to the idea of the esrog being from the tree of knowledge and how it is that the Esther can then be like the, the prize species that we're using on circus? And I'm going to bring one more one more idea, and then and then and then tie it up. Okay, which is which is something that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitz in the name of the Rebbe, which is about wine. Now it says in the Psalms that wine makes the heart forget about God right? Because, you know, you know, if you get drunk, you know, you're, I don't know how many people who get really drunk remember to make the afterbruch over wine. <laughs> That's just one, one very small example about how wine makes the heart forget, okay? So, so you, you forget about a lot of things, right? So, 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 so the Ishwitzer says, or I heard in his name, that, that how high do you hold up the Kiddush cup? when you make Kiddush. So according to him, you hold it up to the level of your heart. Because if wine makes the heart forget, you're saying, now I'm going to use this wine or grape juice, whatever it is, it's all from the grape, in order to sanctify your name, in order to remember you, God. Not to forget you, in order to remember you, that my heart should use this opportunity to remember you, right? A beautiful idea. Okay. So now let's tie all these ideas together and get back to our question. How could it be if the Esrug is according to one opinion the fruit was from the the fruit from the tree of knowledge right which by the way we ultimately would have had permission to eat but we just didn't didn't do it in the right time because we asserted our own will and our own lack of understanding we asserted knowledge before understanding we asserted Eitz hadas before Eitz chayim okay so what happens is, now God gives us this opportunity, it, it, it appears to me, on Sukkos, to use that Esrug for a mitzvah. See, we, 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 we had an opportunity to use it for a mitzvah in the Garden of Eden, by waiting, by not eating from it until the proper time, but we, we couldn't control ourselves. And now on an Sukkos, we get that opportunity and you want to hear something so interesting? The estrag, every uh, of the four species of the Arbaminin, everything is a different body part. So the Aravas are the, are the lips, the hadasim are the eyes, the Lulav is the spine, and do you know what the esteric is? The esteric is the heart. Then interesting? That now with our heart, we have this opportunity, and when you hold the Arbaminin, you're pretty much holding them right by your heart. You know? You're supposed to hold it by your heart. You know, in other words, this thing that made me forget you, now I'm using it in order to serve you, this Esri. You hear? Does everyone hear? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's a big tikkun, this is a big rectification that's happening on Sukkot, Right? Because it's going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to our first mistake. Now I want to build on that some more. Okay, so this is this is um something that I put together. So <coughs> So I noticed something, and I'm not the first person to notice this, believe me. The Torah brings it, and I'm sure it's everyone's known it forever, but I'm just pointing it out to you guys, okay? Which is the following. You see something fascinating in the Torah, which is there's a reference to Sukkot at two critical moments in Jewish history, um, before we actually even officially get the holiday of Sukkot, Okay? So, there were two... I mean, there have been many, but in the, in, the, in the five books anyway, there are two moments where the Jewish people were almost completely eradicated. Completely eradicated. One was in the house of Lovin. Okay? Because, remember, Yaakov's name is also Israel. And Lovin wanted to destroy not just Yaakov, he wanted to destroy Israel and all that that represents. He wanted to wipe them out right at the outset of the beginning of our peoplehood, right? The other example is, of course, in Egypt, right? They tried to just completely wipe us out in Egypt. In both cases, we miraculously, by the grace of God, survived. Now listen to this. At the critical moment of survival, in both of these instances. Alright, so remember, let's just remember Yaakov's journey for a moment. Yaakov is, is told by his brother Esav that he's going to kill him. He escapes, he goes into hiding in the, the yeshiva of Sh- Shem Ever for, for years and years. Then he goes to Lovin's house, right? Then he escapes Lovin's house and he meets Esav, who he thought he's gotten rid of. Asaph is waiting for him with 400 soldiers to wipe out him and his family. That's going to be the end. Miraculously, Yaakov survives that. And the very next line, I'm talking about the next line, the next line in the Torah. After he survives, he escapes from Levin and Asaph. The next line is, And Yaakov went to Sukhosa. And this verse in the Torah, it's verse 33, uh, rather, chapter 33, verse 17, okay? But Jacob journeyed to, in in English they translated it to Sukkos, it's Sukosa, right? And built himself a sukkah for his livestock, he made shelters, and therefore he called the name of the place Sukkis. In this one verse, sukkis is mentioned, or some variant of Sukkos, but each time it means Sukkos. Sukkos is mentioned in this one verse three times. Okay, we're going to get back to that in a moment. When we leave Egypt, it says that we went from, and you know, all of the stops, all of the journeys, like the 42 journeys. Remember, there were 42 journeys from Egypt to Israel. And according to the Baal Shem Tov, each one of us has 42 journeys in our own life. Right? Different stopping points and I'm adding to that, I don't know if that means purely geographical, maybe it means relationships, maybe it means jobs, maybe it means spiritual levels, maybe it also means geographical locations. I, I don't know what the hejbin is, how to, how to understand that 42. But I'm sure on a deep level, we're all hitting our 42, right? In, in whatever form, okay? So, at the very first place that we stopped, it says we went from Ramses, this is getting saved from Paro, from Egypt, okay, this is big, and remember it says in the Zohar, all future redemptions are based on the redemption from Egypt, okay, so you can sort of like extrapolate, you can extrapolate from a redemption of, in Egypt to understand future events as they are going to happen. All right. So it says that we went from Ramses, which was a big city in Egypt, to Sukosa. The very first stop that we make after end the exact same spelling, the exact same word as where it says that Yaakov. And the Balaturn points us out that, that Yaakov went to Sukosa. The very same word, and it's also spelled in an unusual way both of those times to make this connection, okay? And the Baal says that we should understand that we were saved from Egypt because of the merit of Yaakov. By the way, the, it also says for the merit of the women, and the merit of not changing our names, and the merit of speaking the same language, and there were other and not changing our clothes. There, there are other reasons given why we survived Egypt, but one of them here is, is also in the merit of Yaakov. Nonetheless, you're, you're seeing something that, that we get saved and we go to Succus. Okay, now let's go to the next step. And don't forget this, you've got three sukkahs here, right? In that first mention. So I would like to say, I would like to just suggest this, that these three sukkahs, remember, what, what do we say? Harachaman huyakim lanu et david Hanofele. Right, this is one of the things, and we sing, Reb Shlomo has one of his great melodies to this, to This line, it's a very big line about sukkahs. What does it mean that God, please, um, rebuild the fallen sukkah of King David? Right? So, what does that mean? The fallen sukkah, I where, where does it say he built a sukkah? Like, what are they talking about? So, Pshat, everybody knows it's talking about rebuilding the base of Migdash. That's the fallen, the fallen sukkah, it's the base of Mikdash. But, I was learning Torah, this line with a grammarian, someone who's very smart with Hebrew grammar, grammar one year, a while ago. And he told me something amazing about this phrase. The way it's translated into English is we're saying, God, please, the merciful one, you know, um, rebuild the fallen past tense, the fallen sukkah of David. He said it's not past tense. Hanofelet According to him, and he's a scholar, it, it means the falling, I-N-G, the falling sukkah of King David. Meaning the base Hamigdash, the third base Hamigdash is coming down. Mm. It's coming down. Okay? The falling, please rebuild the falling. Mm, right? Sukkah of King David, the base Hamigdash. Continue to pull it down. Every time we're doing mitzvahs, we're pulling it down, we're pulling it down, we're pulling it down. Okay. So I want to say the following, and this is me talking, that the three sukkahs that are referred to, because remember, we say, um, that the deeds of our forefathers are assigned to the children, meaning to say that their lives are a microcosm of everything that's going to happen in the future. You can see it in their lives. I want to say the following that the three sukkas, since we know that sukkah means base Migdash, that the three sukkas that are being referred to, that Yaakov, also known as Israel, goes to right after he's saved from all of these trials of everyone who wants to kill him, and he goes to sukkahs, and it's mentioned three times that this is a deep, deep reference to the three Beis Hamikdashas. Okay? Now, with that in mind, listen to this next piece. One of the Torah portions that we read over Sukkot is appropriately listing the holidays. And and then the last holiday that it mentions is Sukkot. And then it says, there's a big wrap-up. It says, these are the holidays that we all celebrate, and by the way, it's that one line Kiddush, that the one line that you say over Kiddush on the holidays, right? That's, that's 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 the one that you say because it's the big wrap-up thing. And in Shul we say it, right, instead of Vishamru. When we get up to Vishamru right before Shmona Esra, we don't say Vishamru because it's not Shabbos, and we say it's that it's that same line which is the big wrap-up of all the holidays that have just been listed in the Torah that we've just read. Okay? Then something stunning happens. Something stunning happens. The Torah then has two more verses, and then it says the word ach. Ach means but. It's translated as but. And then it starts talking about sukkahs again. It's like, what is going on? Right? We know the Torah is the blueprint of reality. It doesn't do it with any of the other holidays. All the other holidays, you start it, you finish it. You, on to the next. You start it, you finish it. On to the next. Sukkot, you start it. Then you've got the big grand wrap-up. And then it's sort of like, encore, encore, more Sukkot, more Sukkot. And you're back into Sukkot. What, what's going on? And it begins with this word that the the the, the, the commentators, like, note the fact that when it transitions back to it, it transitions back to it with this word ach. Aleph, chath. Aleph, chath adds up to 21. Okay, so I, now I want to just offer an interpretation. Why are we making the break in between sukkahs? Why are we beginning with this word ach? Ach is 21. Twenty-one is the divine name ehia we say Ekia. Like, we don't want to abuse that name, but that's... ekia is the divine name associated with the sphere of Keter. Keter is all the way at the top, 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 top. So again, we talk about sukkus, we wrap up the holidays, and then all of a sudden it says, Ach, we elevate all the way up. We spiral all the way up to Keter. And we're talking about Sukkot again. So I want to say that this is now, when we're talking about Sukkot the second time, we're talking about the ear of Mashiach. We're talking about the third Beis HaMegdash at this point. This is like the third Sukkot in, in 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 that verse with Yaakov Avina. Right? What does it say in the end of days we're all going to be in a sukkah made out of the skin of the leviathan Right? So, sukkah is this messianic ideal where the revelation of God's hug around us, God's constant presence, right? Like, all of a sudden becomes manifest. And it's just like this most beautiful, 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 beautiful thing. So this is the time of our joy and Rabbi Nachman says that a person's natural state is joy and the idea is that after we've just been cleansed after Yom Kippur we can return we can return back to who we really are right and I just want to just say one note about joy and we'll wrap it up which is that you know, sometimes I talk to people and, and they, they, they put a lot of pressure on themselves to be in this state of happiness, right? But, but relax. Just take the pressure off. <laughs> take it easy. Just take it easy, you know? You see, just to go back to just one of the main things I, I, I'd love to be able to communicate in my lifetime is this this notion that it's mistaken thinking to say the following. God is as close to me as I feel his presence in this moment. God is close to you whether you feel his presence or not. He's there either way. So you can take the pressure off having to feel it like almost like you're trying to summon his closeness through your appreciation of his closeness just take the pressure off he's there either way and then if you really just go into a state of gratitude which you can do just just by just looking around you and just thanking god for things like that then you will begin to feel it, if you want to It's a good thing to do if you want to do it, because that's what we call a virtuous cycle. Then that leads to more good things and more good things and more good things. But when we talk about Zman, Simcha the time of our joy, just begin with the recognition that God is there, that God is always there, that you're in his embrace wherever you go, whatever you do.